What you're listening to is the call of an Atlantic puffin, standing guard outside its burrow on the tiny island of Hernikin in the remote Rust archipelago of Arctic Norway. Where I'm sitting now, I can see puffins sitting on the water just outside of the island. Um, they're just rafting for, for a minute. There are some in the sky that are flying to the colony with fish in their beak for their chick. And then there are some standing just on land outside of the burrows having fed their chicks. So they are, they are really everywhere around me. Dr. Annette Fayette is a researcher with a special interest in seabird ecology, behaviour and conservation, working for the Norwegian Institute for Nature Research. When puffins fly in to feed their chick, you can usually see them circle the colonies a few times to find the best angle of landing. It's not so easy and it really depends on the wind conditions and also on whether they are predators waiting around. Often gulls uh, may try and steal their fish. So they have to be very quick when they go into the burrow. They'll do a few circles around and then when they decide to go in, they'll just go straight for the burrow and land as close as possible to the entrance as they can and rush in with the fish very quickly. But sometimes uh, they don't have such um, a gracious landing, so you'll see some um, hitting the ground a bit too hard or tumbling on one side. But they're usually pretty good at it, and you'll see them disappear in the burrow instantly, and they'll reappear maybe 30 seconds later without the fish, which they have given to the chick. And once they don't have the fish anymore, they are uh, less of interest to the gulls, so they will just stand around on the rocks for sometimes several hours, socialising with their neighbours. That unmistakable call, used by pairs to signal to each other at their breeding sites and to communicate with their pufflings, yes, that really is the name given to baby puffins, is perhaps not the sound that one might expect a puffin to make. But then, this is a bird that makes a habit of defying expectations. They nest underground in burrows, which they excavate using their powerful feet. They spend the vast majority of their lives bobbing on the open ocean, only coming to land to nest during the summer months. They molt and regrow their feathers every year, as all birds do, but then go one better by molting and regrowing their oversized beaks too. The puffin must surely be one of the world's most engaging, unusual, and dare I say it, comical creatures. The puffin is inquisitive. That's a curious thing. If you go to the Salties, great place to seek puffins, or to Schellig Michael, they're very close. They look at you and you look at them. There's a relationship between you and them. That's not true of other seabirds. They seem to accept you. And you can go quite close to them, I think, anyway. I remember ringing puffins. I ringed puffins down on Puffin Island. And when we were sitting on the ledge with my filet net, the puffins would come to inspect me, in a sense. They'd fly close by. What is this fellow doing? What is his business here? That sort of thing. Puffins are clearly very special birds capable of remarkable feats of endurance in extreme environments. But I'm fairly sure that's not the main reason that people love them so much. So what is it about puffins that warms our hearts? Zoologist Dr Richard Collins. They're the great showbiz bird, really. They are marvellous performers. Now, why do we like them so much? Well, we like things, I believe that resemble us, things we can identify with. And the puffin, if you look at him, is very unlike other seabirds. Seabirds live in cold, austere, unfriendly places. We can't identify with them out in this cold wilderness of the oceans. But the puffin is a bit different. He has a bill that actually looks like a nose. And he's very colourful. So we can identify with him. He seems to look at you when you're on the slopes. It's cuddly. He's a cuddly sea parrot, as he's sometimes called. Now, the other thing he has is personality. He's very disarming in the way he goes on. No highfalutin, pompous stuff like albatrosses roaming the oceans and that kind of thing. And if you look at the name, it's, the Latin name is Fratercula which means little brother, which is very comforting and warm, I think. 
and no pretensions. He's not elegant. He hasn't got the elegance of a gannet, long and sleek. He's dumpy, fat, kind of middle-aged spread kind of a bird. And he lives in a cosy burrow. Uh, you know, he's not out on an austere ledge with the winds and the waves spraying up on top of him. No, he, he lives in a cosy burrow that he rents from a rabbit, as always seems to me. But in the old days, they would dig and scratch the burrow out. And a group of puffins would gather all around them in a kind of a semicircle. I saw this happen. Looking at the fellow doing the digging, they wouldn't do any of the digging themselves. It seemed a kind of endearing, very human sort of thing to do. This is a very friendly, attractive little bird that is kind of one of us. There's no getting around it. Puffins are cute. Adorable, even. As a result, from Maine to Nova Scotia, the Faroe Islands to Shetland, Spitsbergen to Brittany, wherever there are readily accessible puffin colonies, they have become magnets for tourists. Perhaps nowhere illustrates this better than the magnificent Cliffs of Moher in County Clare on Ireland's Atlantic seaboard, one of Ireland's most famous and most visited tourist attractions, and summer home to a large population of our most charismatic seabird, much to the delight of the numerous visitors. Sorry, can I uh, ask you something? I, uh, I'm from Holland. Uh, I'm looking for the papagai diker, we call it. We call it the puffin the here puffin. in Ireland, yes. yes. They were swimming in the sea, wasn't yes. it? Out at sea, yeah. There's a group out here, about ten, just out here in the water. Oh, yeah, I see yeah. them. I see them, yeah. Yeah, I, I take my binoculars. Binoculars. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. The Cliffs of Moher are an astonishing sight. Anyone who has had the privilege of visiting this majestic west coast outpost, looming over the wild Atlantic as waves crash far below, understands immediately why there's such a draw for tourists, who flock there from all corners of the globe to experience their awe-inspiring rugged beauty. Now you're welcome to the Cliffs of Moher, and you've got a beautiful day for it, and uh, we've got quite a few people here today. Astonishing though the cliffs are in their own right, and they truly are a geological wonder to behold, for me, the bird life they support is the real attraction. The sights, sounds and, yes, smells of thousands of seabirds nesting cheek by jowl on the cliff faces and atop the sea stacks provide a true, almost overwhelming, multi-sensory experience. I was thrilled to have the opportunity to chat with local wildlife expert Tom Doherty, who has worked as a ranger at the Cliffs of Moher for the past 17 years. They come from every country and a lot of them are, they want to see the puffin. I imagine many people, when they see their first puffin, it must be quite an experience for them. What do they tell you about them? They get so excited when they see it, like when they come and uh, say, can we see puffins? And when you get them a pair of binoculars and point out where the puffins are, they are so excited. And it's a great feeling that they are so happy to be going away with that feeling, like, you know, of having seen that first puffin. The tourists who visit the Cliffs of Moher call the puffins by many different names. Papagaidiker in Dutch, Macaro in French, and Lundi in Icelandic. What's in a name? Well, the scientific name of the bird known in English as the puffin is perhaps the most evocative, Fraturcula arctica, which translates literally as little monk or little brother of the Arctic. A fitting moniker, in particular, for the puffins that call the ancient monastic settlement on Skellig Vahil home. In Irish, it's generally known as Puffin, but it has other names too. I'm going to talk about on Thainbrach, the Puffin, on Fwipin, the Chicken of the Sea, on Talbanach, on Patarua. There's all sorts of names for it, actually. Broadcaster, author and naturalist, Eina Nilana. When you look at the proper bird books, they all have to put in the Irish word for it because they're, they're good at that. And when you go to the Puffin, they all have Puffin. So, well, puffin is one of the words that they've done their duty. But when you scratch a little bit onto the surface, there's actually loads of names for the puffin because, I mean, a bird like that would be known to everybody and that this really means then that you can get a proper Irish name for it. So on blaskets, they used to call it whipping. And whipping was translated as chicken of the sea. So there must have been eaten it as well if it was chicken of the sea. And then, of course, you have just that far from there in Kerry, you have Puffin Island. But when you look up Puffin Island in, in, in Dinian's great dictionary, it's Ilan the Conog. And Conog is a name for a puffin, he says, or indeed a sheer water rider. So they didn't discriminate. So when they look at the official bird books, they have the Conog as the sheer water. But it was actually also used for the puffin. 
So you move up along the coast then, because coastal areas are where the puffin is found, and of course that's where the Irish language is still to this day. And we've a new book out actually, which is called In the Ear Hooskirt Here Cuddle. And this is the birds of the northwest of Donegal. Not the whole of Donegal, not Ulster. <laughs> it's the northwest of Donegal, written by Matthew O'Morocco. And this, of course, includes places like Torrey Island, where, as you know, and everybody else knows, there are no rats. Colm Kill made sure there weren't. And, of course, rats are the deadly enemy of the puffin. So if there's no rats, there's lashings of puffins. So Matthew O'Morocco calls it Untain Brack in his main heading to the article on the puffins. And Untain Brack means the speckled bird which seems a rather strange name for it, but that's what he has, and he gives no explanation as to why he calls it Unthane Brack. But when you go looking into it, then he has a whole load of words that they have for it as well. And one of them is Albanock. Now, Albanock is the Irish word for somebody from Scotland. So I rushed back to Deneen to see what he had to say about Albanock, and he says Albanock is also a name for Puffin, probably because of its solemn expression and black drapery. But on Torrey anyway, they were very familiar with this. And they had this tradition that the puffins came back to the island, came back to where they nested on Good Friday to clear out their burrows. And then they went off to sea again and didn't come back until the end of May when they actually bred and nested. But they actually made a special journey on Good Friday. Now, mind you, Good Friday is not the same Friday every year. It depends on the lunar and it depends on Easter. But faithfully, they turned up on Good Friday to clear out the nests and then they came back on the end of Balthal and the end of May to actually breed and build their nests. So when you could see them coming on Good Friday, and they all went out to look, obviously, it was nearly like a national holiday in the sense to go out and have a look at them. You saw them there and you knew then that summer was on the way. They, they knew them very well and there's a story told in, in, in his book Matthew he says that these strangers had arrived on, on Torrey and they were walking along the road. Now remember we called it on Torrey we were calling this on Patharua which is the red pet. So they're walking along the road and they meet these strangers and the stranger asks them is there any Patha Albany around? Now, Patha Albany, Patha is the pet and Albany is the word. So anyway, these fellas knew that if, it was, if they were calling it a Patha Albany, as opposed to a Patha Rua, that they were Protestants. So even how you even spoke of the puffin, give away your religion, never mind anything else. So what's in the name? I'm telling you, there's lots in the name. Whatever you want to call them, puffins are utterly unmistakable. These diminutive seabirds, standing around 20 centimetres tall, look like nothing else that can be found in the natural world. Indeed, with their oversized multicoloured red, yellow and blue bills, clown-like faces and endearing waddling gait, they look more like soft toys, children's drawings or cartoon characters than real live birds. It's morning on Puffin Rock and our pufflings are up and raring to go. Quick, Baba. Mossy said we're going to do something really exciting today. I can't wait to find out what it is. Oh, Baba must have had some extra fish this morning. He's in a very playful mood. Mossy! Baba, Una, where have you been? We got here as fast as we could, Mossy. What are we going to do today? Today... We are going on a food hunt! Yippee! As we've established, the puffin is known by many names. Papageientaucher to the Germans, Freilesio to the Spanish, Sopapagai to the Danish, or to children around the world, Una, and not forgetting her little brother Baba, the stars of the animated phenomenon that is one of Ireland's greatest entertainment success stories, Puffin Rock. I think a puffin is particularly appealing. You know, they're very colourful. They've got cute little chicks and, of course, our little puffins. We have a very young chick in it and we have a little girl, Una, who is growing up and finding her way in the world. And I think um, puffins have a very interesting way of finding their way in the world. You know, they, they're very close to their parents, but then they also go out to sea and spend months at sea before coming back to land again. So I think that was very interesting, the thought that they spend this time and have this life on, on the island, but then they also go out to sea for months at a time. This acclaimed children's television series about an adorable pair of pufflings and their adventures is the creation of five-time Oscar-nominated Kilkenny-based animation studio Cartoon Saloon. Lorraine Lorden. 
they live kind of secretive lives. They spend a lot of time underground as well. They burrow and at the beginning of their lives, they spend a lot of time underground. Not a lot of people know that. So um, there's a lot to learn. And I think that's what makes it interesting as well, is that there's so much we think we know, you know, we're very familiar with what a puffin looks like, but actually we don't know very much about their lives. So I think that's part of the appeal. And of course, I think for Irish audiences, something that's really, really nice is that it's Irish voices and for us to, you know, have our kids watch something in our own accent is quite nice, you know. Una and Baba have now graduated to the big screen. Puff and Rock and the New Friends, the movie, was released in July 2023. Ooh, I've never seen so many puffins. Neither have I. There are puffins of all shapes and sizes from all over the world. It's like a big puffin party. Tufted puffins, horned puffins, and of course, Atlantic puffins. Here on Puffin Rock. Ah, that's a young tufted puffin. It looks like there might be a friend for Una in the new arrivals. Wow, you're really great at flying. Thanks. I'm Una, and this is Baba. I'm Isabel, and this this is Phoenix. Jeremy Purcell is the director, and Lorraine Lorden the assistant director of the new film. So when we were coming to making the movie, uh, one big thing that we wanted to look at was how do we turn a seven-minute episode from the TV series, which is so gentle and, and nice and lovely, about Una and Baba, into a 75-minute cinema-going experience that that's definitely worth going to the cinema for. So we, we talked a lot about how the story might evolve, and one of the ideas was about new characters coming to the island. So we have some new friends arriving, so Isabel, Marvin and Phoenix... So Isabel is a, a tufted puffin, a young tufted puffin, whose home has been affected by a large storm and she can't live there anymore. So herself and her foster brother, Phoenix, come to live on Puffin Rock. And she finds it difficult to live there and come to terms with moving home and stuff. And our, our idea when we talked about it was... Isabel is really just a 10-year-old kid who moves schools. It might be as simple as doing that or who has to move to a new city or who has to, and what would they go through and how would they feel about that? So she come, she's coming to terms with trying to move and leave home or what she perceives, what her island home and come to a new place and she has to learn how to make this new place a home for herself as well. I was delighted to see that the filmmakers have found such an effective way to introduce the threats posed to nature by climate change to the world of Puffin Rock and, by extension, to very young children. Well, I think that the message is very subtle, but it's there. And it definitely was in our minds as we were preparing the film. We really concentrated on the characters and what their journey was, but their journey started because of issues arising from climate change, Isabel's habitat is affected by climate change. It is affected by storms, the likes of that they haven't seen before, which we are experiencing in the world. So her journey starts with this, and it is alluded to, but it is a very gentle message. It is for kids, so we do think that the way that we talk about nature is maybe a little bit more subtle for children so that they are taking it in. They will definitely empathise with the situation of Isabel having to move home, but also that that's, you know, home is a safety net. So taking um, kids out of that and, and them seeing the struggle that another child is having, because that's, that's all our puffins are. They're just children, really, dealing with the problems of the world. In a very subtle way, they're taking in that message that we have a responsibility to other people and to the animals and to to the world. So I hope that comes across in some small way. But the new Puffin Rock movie is not the first time that Irish Puffins have starred on the big screen, in a sense. When the monastic ruins of Skellig Vihil were chosen, rather fittingly, as the location for Luke Skywalker's self-imposed exile in the most recent Star Wars trilogy, 
the Lucasfilm Disney production team was faced with a problem. There were puffins everywhere, continually wandering into shot. Rather than remove them in post-production, the easier and cheaper option was to use digital special effects to turn them into similarly adorable little flying creatures, called porgs. Another iconic star of the silver screen was born, all thanks to the puffin. As we learned earlier from Puffin Rock and the New Friends, in addition to our Atlantic puffin, there are three other closely related puffin species, namely the horned puffin, the tufted puffin and the rhinoceros auklet. Though as these are all confined to the North Pacific Ocean, there's little risk of confusion with the puffins found in our part of the world. All of these puffin species live in very harsh and extreme environments, and all share some remarkable adaptations that make this possible. Biologist and former science teacher, Terry Flanagan. They're not the only bird that can drink salt water, but it's some adaptation. Imagine you or I trying to drink salt water. You'd soon be throwing it up. And then when they dive, they can dive down to 60 metres to catch their food. And when they're down there, they actually fly underwater. They use their wings to fly and they use their feet to steer. And the wings, puffins have to travel huge distances in search of food. And they beat their wings about 400 times a minute. Now you try that at home. Get out your stopwatch. See how many times you can flap your arms up and down in one minute. As Terry says, puffins must travel long distances from their nest sites in order to find food, up to 50 kilometres or more. It wouldn't make evolutionary sense for them merely to catch a single fish, fly all the way back to the nesting burrow to deposit it, then repeat the process. To avoid this, they've developed some remarkable adaptations to help them to carry as much sustenance as possible back to their hungry pufflings in one go. The most striking feature of the puffin has to be the beak. That beautiful coloured beak, those stripes on it, stand out in summertime. But it's also more important than that. Let me just explain it. If I go over here to the cutlery drawer and I take out a knife, and this here is a... This is a steak knife, and when you look at the steak knife, the steak knife is different to others because it's serrated, and so is the beak of the puffin. And the reason why it's serrated is that it allows the puffin to dive and to catch fish, and not just catch the fish, but also to hold them in their mouth when they continue to catch other fish. And it's not just the beak, it's also the tongue, because the tongue is raspy, and there's spines on the palate, and this gets this grip on these fish. I'm told that the record is in excess of 60 prey items in its mouth and there it is, flying 40 or 50 kilometres back to the nest. Well, that's some adaptation. The ocean is a big place. How do the puffins know exactly where to go to find food? Dr Stephen Newton is Senior Seabird Conservation Officer with Birdwatch Ireland. Well, I think it all depends on, on local availability and, and their own knowledge of what's going on. And there's always this case with colonial birds whereby they may follow each other. They, they watch birds coming back to a colony and those that are coming back with lots of big fish. They will be tracking the direction they're coming from. So they might say, when I next go out, I'm going to fly where that fella came from and we'll hopefully come across a prey aggregation that they can exploit on the other hand they might know their own best favorite patches and they must just go to those and then if there's nothing there then they might start following other birds so this is an area where we're doing sort of lots of work and using lots of electronic tags to help us elucidate what goes on out there but generally speaking i would say they would forage within five to forty kilometers of the colony that sort of thing they don't want to go too far because they've got to bring the fish back for their chicks. In doing that, sometimes they're vulnerable to, to what we call kleptoparasites. These are the skewers and seabirds like that, which would steal fish from them. So the longer they're flying with the fish in their beak, the more likely they are to lose it in effect. So they will try and forage as close to the colony as possible and you know we always think the colonies are located in prey rich areas anyway but by and large i would say five 
20, 40 kilometres, that sort of range, which it wouldn't take them that long to fly, but they're, they're going to bring in fish every few hours for their chicks during that stage of, of the breeding season. As Stephen Newton has highlighted, modern technology is revolutionising our understanding of how puffins behave, as well as the threats that they face. On the Roost Archipelago in Arctic Norway, Dr Annette Fayette is using GPS technology to track adult puffins to their feeding grounds. To study the feeding movements of puffins, I use uh, GPS technology, which is the same technology you might use on your phone uh, when, you, um, when you use uh, Google Maps, for example, to find out where you are. And these are very small, they weigh just a few grams, and we can put them on the leg or the back or the tail of a puffin, and they'll stay there for maybe a, a couple of weeks. And they record every five minutes or so the exact location of the bird. And so we can retrace its steps out at sea when it goes out to feed uh, for its chick. We, we're only tracking adults when we want to know where they feed because during the breeding season, the chick, the puffling, stays on the colony inside its burrow. That's why it's safe from predators. So it's the parents that have to go out to sea catch some fish and bring it back over and over again to the chick until it has grown enough that it can fly itself and leave the colony and goes uh, feeding for itself. So these are the movements I have been studying. Tools like GPS are helping to fill in the blanks in our knowledge, giving us a clearer picture of how the birds behave away from land. The first thing I found is that puffins can actually feed quite far from the colony. But the main interesting results that uh, we had is that this really differed between different colonies. So I have been tracking puffins in Wales, in the UK, where they were doing quite well. And I've also been tracking puffins in Norway, here on the Rust, where I am at the moment, and in multiple colonies in Iceland as well. And what we found is on some colonies, puffins had to go and feed much, much further than on other colonies. And we found that this distance was actually linked with how well the puffin chicks were doing. And this makes complete sense. When the puffins have food nearby, they can do short trips to go and get food for the chick. And the chick can get fed very often and it grows well and survives. But on some colonies like Hurst, where I am now, the puffins have to feed much, much further away. And that means they can't come back and feed the chick as often. In the process, the parents also get very tired because they have to take these very long flights. And so what happens is that these chicks do not get enough food and they just can't grow and some of them don't make it and don't even survive until they leave the burrow. Now, this has an effect over time. If it happens just as a one-off, this may be less noticeable but because this has been happening over and over and over again for decades. This means that there are just fewer younger puffins in the population. And so the older puffins that die of old age do not get replaced. And so little by little, the population declines. So there has been a number of reasons, but we think what's happening right now in the last sort of 20 years where the puffins are really struggling to rear chicks is that they just don't have the food near the colony to feed the chicks properly. If you go to a colony where puffins are doing well, for example, the colony in Wales, uh, which was called Skoma Island, where another part of the study was done, you can see puffins in sort of June, July, coming back to the colony with really large beakfuls of uh, silvery fish. The favorite one over there is uh, the sand eel, but in other places they might eat herring, for example. But here on the rest, when you look around and you see the puffins coming back to their nest, they only have this really, really tiny fish basically which are so small that they won't represent a nutritious meal for a puffin so what's happening is these puffins have to fly really far away to find food and even the food that they find there is not good quality enough and so the chicks just starve to death and there's very very few chicks which manage to leave the colony and, and join the breeding populations a, a few years later and so little by little the population is dwindling Unfortunately, the decline is not confined to remote islands in Arctic Norway. Right across their breeding range, puffins are in trouble. Dr Stephen Newton. The, the global picture is, is not great. So there's been declines just about everywhere across the puffins range. To the extent that the birds have become endangered on the, on the BirdLife International 
global endangerment index, you know, the red listing and whatever. We have puffins red listed in Ireland and they are globally endangered as well. So the, there's a big problem with puffins and their prey, possibly related climate, fisheries, lots of different factors. But within Ireland, definite decline, a significant decline. We census our birds across the island of Ireland every 15 to 20 years. We did a big survey called CBA 2000, centred on the on the millennium. We've recently completed a, a new iteration of this survey called Seabirds Count, which most of the, the, the counting went on between 2015 and 2020. We're about to publish the results of that survey in, in, in a book later this year. But that has shown a significant decline. So they're in a pretty bad shape basically across the country. Virtually every colony has shown a significant decline between those two surveys. The only site where there's been a significant increase is Skellig Michael in Kerry, where the birds have increased up to 6,800 pairs, which is significant, a 70% increase from the SIBA 2000 count. But elsewhere, declines of between 20 and 90% at virtually all Irish colonies. So it's not good news. It seems that climate change is having a dramatic impact on the fish that puffins need, such as sand eels and young herring. These small fish feed on plankton, which in turn favour colder waters, which contain more oxygen. As sea temperatures increase, the plankton are moving ever further north. The fish follow suit, taking them out of range of the puffin colonies. Back in the 1950s in this area, there had been overfishing of some uh, species that the birds were feeding on, for example, herring, and the stocks collapsed. But this has now recovered. But there still hasn't been a really good herring year for the puffins in many years. And what we think is happening is the environmental conditions are changing. Now, fish are very sensitive to the conditions in the ocean, especially the forage fish, which means this little fish that most seabirds feed on. And basically, if there's a disruption, it could be temperature, for example, then this will affect the entire food chain. And as we know, the temperatures in the oceans are changing, but we also know the currents are changing. For example, the currents that used to bring the spawning herring close to these colonies are moving. And so this means that a resource, the herring or other fish in other places, that were once plentiful for the puffins to feed their chicks with, are now very scarce. So the puffins have to turn to other types of fish which are not as nutritious. But what can we do about it? Well, that's a very good question. <laughs> One of the obvious things to do is to try and reduce our carbon emissions and to stop at least the worsening effects of climate change as soon as we can. But this is something that has to happen at a very large scale level, um, not just individuals, but governments and, you know, across continents. And even then, this might stop what could become worse in the future, but we've already done a lot of damage, so there's already a lot of problems. What we can do at the same time is try and reduce other potential pressures on the birds. For example, this does not apply so much to puffins, but some birds are also suffering from um, the effect of bycatch in fisheries or um, habitat loss, invasive species on their colonies and so on. So we can also try and reduce other pressures they're facing to minimise the problems, if you, if you see what I mean. Um, but it's, it's a very tricky position and, you know, it doesn't look very good for puffins in the future if things continue. How much for a ticket to the Westman Islands, please? It's 2,400 just the one way, so 4,800 for both ways. How long does the journey take? It takes around 40 minutes. That's great. I'll take a return ticket, please. All right. Uh, I'll just need your ID to put your name on the booking. It's early May, and I'm taking a ferry to Jaime, the largest of the Westman Islands, four nautical miles off the southwest coast of Iceland, where the puffin nesting season has just got underway. As at the Cliffs of Moher, both the geology and the bird life of the Westman Islands are huge tourist attractions, particularly during the puffin breeding season. I have visited Iceland many times and lived here in the 70s and I've never been to the Westman Islands. 
and they were actually still paying to recover the harbor after the volcano eruption when I lived here in the 70s. So I've always had an interest and now I finally have the chance and so we're going over and we're taking the puffin tour while we're over here. In January 1973, Jaime was the scene of a cataclysmic event when, without warning, a massive volcanic eruption destroyed hundreds of homes and came perilously close to obliterating the island's harbour. A movie term camera crew presents these dramatic pictures of the volcano of Helgafo on the Westman Islands, dormant for nearly 7,000 years, now suddenly awakening into violent life. Black volcanic ash threatens to bury the main town on Jaime as they struggle to save some of the houses and fishing factories. The 5,000 inhabitants of the island were evacuated by fishing boats to the mainland within hours of the start of the eruption. James Watson is a Navy veteran who was posted at the former US Naval Air Station at Keflavik. This may be his first trip to the Westman Islands, but it's not the first time he's seen a puffin. The first time I went to Dirhole, which is an, a rock arch that extends off the southern coast, it's known for puffins, and we were walking up, and after we parked and were walking in, a young French girl came running over to us and said, oh, do you want to see a puffin? I can show you where there is one. And so we went with her and she said, okay, and we had to lay down on the ground and we had to crawl out on the edge to the cliff and look down and there was one sole puffin sitting there. And we took pictures and we were all very excited that we had pictures of a puffin. And when we were finally done, we stood up and we continued walking and we walked about 50 meters further and there must have been thousands of puffins in the cliffs. But we had our picture of one, so... And then we got pictures of lots more. And they're everywhere. That was in July. And so it was after most of the nesting was done. But if you're here in late May or June, they're nesting up there and it's all blocked off because you can't go and walk around mm. up there and disturb them while we're nesting. So we were, we were very lucky that we were able to get in and see them at that time. And they're quite amazing. Beautiful birds. This time we'll be going up into the West Fjords and we will hopefully see them up in the West Fjords while we're up there too. I hope. Because it's always the high point of some of our visits here is to be able to see the puffins. They're so pretty and so in industrious. Iceland is the puffin-watching capital of the world, home to 60% of the planet's Atlantic puffin population. The largest breeding colonies are found on the Westman Islands. Niall, welcome to the Westman Islands. Erpa, hello. How do you feel to be back home? How do you mean? Well, the place is named Westman Islands. Westman were Irish, and uh, it so happens that a group of slaves of, of the founder of Reykjavik, Ingolor Arnason, they rebelled, killed him, and fled here. And when they were caught cooking over there, they were all slayed, unfortunately for them. But, uh, but the, yeah, this is named after Irish. Direct translation. Well, on behalf of my countrymen, apologies for the killing of the founder of Reykjavik. I hope you're going to let me go home today. <laughs> well, we will see later. Dr. Erper Hansen is a biologist and seabird specialist based at the South Iceland Nature Research Centre on Jaime. He is part of an international team of researchers studying and comparing the feeding behaviour of puffin populations in Wales, Norway and Iceland. Puffins can be roughly split into five major populations and Iceland is the number one in, in size. So I'm talking about size-wise. Second is Norway and so on. We have about 2.7 million burrows and we are close to the final figure. That corresponds roughly to 10 million individuals. But uh, there have been two massive declines uh, in the last decades, since 1995. Uh, late 90s was one, and, and we lost about 50% of the immature population. And then another one still ongoing, although it's improving. 2003 to 2015 or so, we lost another 40%. So overall and all, given every, all the age groups, this is the total population, we have had 70% decline probably more, it's not final calculations, it's still sort of on the drawing table, but uh, in other words, a massive decline in Icelandic puffins. Still, after all these uh, declines, it's still the most common bird in Iceland, uh, and, and it's, uh, people can't tell unless they've seen the cliffs in, in the 80s when they were, and there's film of that, fortunately, where they are so packed that they're covered with birds. And when you see the same places now, it's uh, striking, to say the least. There's some quite serious declines that you're mentioning there. What's been causing that? Two things. Uh, one is basically uh, food supply in the wintering area, which is fairly recently discovered by using these geolocators. We put them on, on them and we are partake in a very large collaborative program called Sea track We People can actually go online and 
and look for ctruck.no and we just discovered a massive uh, wintering area there for multiple species uh, sort of hot spot and millions of seabirds uh, sort of general population sizes rely on on this tough period in in their uh, in their uh, life cycle in, in, in terms of low food supply in winter basically it's plenty in this area but that has reduced dramatically now in the 90s and our puffin populations followed suit and a more recent one is a local one Blake rising mainly the south and a little bit less the, the west and that is a uh, different timing of the ecosystem sort of dynamics in, in, in uh, spring. And in summary, it's basically killing off all the little fish fry and, and uh, hence the chicks don't have anything to eat. And we've been very poor chick production for almost two decades now. So that is the, the newer version and that is caused by an interplay of factors. One suddenly it seems to be decline, 25% decline of a nutrient, silicate, which is a very low levels here in the first place. And then also uh, temperature is, is seems to be uh, also playing a role, but we are, we are currently modeling that situation. It's causing uh, their the breeding season to delay by 17 days and it's uh, just unheard of. So the mortality is highest among the younger birds. The more the adults are surviving, is that right? It, no, yeah, it looks like the younger birds, the first year of their life is their toughest. They are unexperienced and so on. And also we know that in these poor years they are lighter. And uh, it matters immensely if just 10, 20 grams heavier or, or lighter. Uh, heavy cohorts or gear classes have up to five times more survival probability than the lighter ones. But also uh, when you have a food supply reduction of half, then you basically are weeping out all the young birds more or less. It's a massive uh, declines in the winter situation. But in, in the summer situation, you have basically the chicks don't uh, fledge. They, they will die or even in worst case scenarios, they abandon the eggs. That uh, happens uh, also. And uh, what we are seeing is, is that uh, many, in many years here, only half of the birds or, or so roughly around that are breeding. A lot of them are actually skipping breeding. And I think what's going on is that they gauge very well the abundance of, of, of food. And when the food is delayed, uh, and these, uh, Critters they eat, they just don't multiply until there's plenty of uh, plankton and, and everything in full swing in the sea. The later this is, the, the less likely they seem to be getting into physical breeding condition and, and they will just, just abandon. I think that's what happens here. And we see a very strong correlation between lateness and burrow occupancy, or how many attempt to breed. I was saddened to hear about the puffin declines in Iceland, but how are they faring at their Irish colonies? Dr. Stephen Newton. The one we've mentioned a lot is, is Skellig. So basically we're at the bottom left-hand corner of Ireland in County Kerry, where, which actually holds probably two or three of the most important puffin colonies anyway. So Skellig's there with nearly 7,000 pairs. We have very close to it is Puffin Island, a Birdwatch Island reserve. And there we have 2,250 pairs just across Stingle Bay, we get to the Blasket Islands, a group of four or five islands. Each, most of them have puffins on them. And there, there's 2,000 or so pairs. So that cluster literally supports about two thirds of Ireland's puffins. The, the rest are spread out a bit more widely. And if we move north from Kerry into County Clare, we have a single site. And this is quite an unusual one because it's really the only mainland site in Ireland where puffins breed on the cliffs of Moa. But there, we're not quite sure. The puffins are a long way down on, on some grassy slopes at the bottom of the cliffs. They're very hard to view safely. So we only have a you know a rough idea of how many are there. I, I have a feeling that our, our latest estimate is a bit of an undercount. So I think there's more than a few hundred, but there may only be a thousand or so there. Heading north from that, we have three colonies in County Mayo, including... Bill's Rocks, Illan Mauster, and the Stags of Broadhaven. So th three little clusters in Mayo. 
I think the Stags of Broadhaven are perhaps the best of the three, but all of them have, have experienced these declines that I've been talking about. Then from there, there's quite a, a, a big gap in a way. There's there, there are islands, but for some reasons, puffins haven't ex exploited them as, as breeding colonies. The next nearest colony really is Tory Island in County Donegal. So we're now at the northwest corner of Ireland. And there we possibly have a thousand or so puffins nesting on Tory Island. In Northern Ireland, County Antrim, Rathlin Island, a very big and beautiful island, that has a small number of puffins there at the RSPB Reserve at the West Light. It's, it's a very good place to go and see them, but puffins have been declining there quite significantly. We know one of the key factors there is it's probably not prey and food, it's more to do with predation while they're on land. Rathlin Island is, I wouldn't say it's unique, but it, it has two awful predators of burrow nesting species, which typically are the puffins, and that are ferrets that have been introduced to the island and brown rats. And at the moment, our colleagues in the RSPB are undertaking a big eradication project on Rathlin Island. It is a big island, so it's a massive multi-year undertaking to try and trap and bait all those rats and ferrets get them off the island and hopefully that we'll see a significant recovery there of puffins and other species terrestrial birds things like corncrakes and whatever that also nest on the island would benefit from the absence of the, those introduced predators the rest of Antrim and County Down we don't have any puffin colonies there we have to move into County Dublin and its islands Lambay is really the east coast centre of the puffin population although our official figures only show one to two hundred pairs there I think there are more and I think we have good years and bad years and I know some years I go there and there are relatively few puffins and other years there are many more and unfortunately you have to pick one year and we might pick the wrong year when the population is at apparent low but we do need to know more about what's going on on Lambe because it is quite significant as our only mid-Irish Sea colony of puffins. Southwards from Lambay, very close, in fact it's only about 10 kilometres to the south of it, is Ireland's Eye, a very popular island with visitors, it's easy to get to. Unfortunately it only has a tiny handful of puffins and in summer 2022 I think I got about 25 to 30 puffins on the island. But you know you can see them quite easily either on the sea below the cliffs or quite close to the landing point on the island on the northwest corner of the island so that's an easy place for, for Dubliners to go and see puffins and after that again there's a long gap down the coast of Wicklow and Wexford until we more or less turn around the corner of Carnsall Point and get, get into what we call the Celtic Sea and there we have Wexford's Salty Islands which is, is perhaps the stronghold on the on this side of the country so there are problems in Saltee. There have been declines in the puffins there, so there's not that many there at the moment. But the good news is one of the key factors that we think was, was affecting the puffins were brown rats. They have more or less been eradicated from Great Saltee in the last two or three years. So again, it's another place where we hope to see a bit of a rebound in the puffin population. I'm working on the Salty Islands um, in relation to some puffins that are breeding there. So the Salty Islands are um, quite a small colony compared to some of the other ones we have in, in Ireland. There's around about 500 breeding pairs across both the Great Salty and Little Salty Island, but that is likely to increase in the coming years because recently there was a rat eradication program there. And rats are a very um, strong predator of puffins, so they've been sort of depressing the population there. But we've been working there to do some large-scale tracking of the puffin populations to find out what they do on their winter migrations. And that involves attaching a small tracking device that's attached to a small plastic ring that goes around the leg of the bird. And that sits on them for about a year. And we get that back the next day. And that gives us information on where they've travelled over the winter period and how they might be vulnerable to different climate effects and, and other impacts. Marine biologist Dr Mark Jessop is a lecturer in zoology at the School of Biological Earth and Environmental Science at University College Cork. We've actually found that the Irish puffins travel a very large distance. We hadn't really anticipated this based on other studies that were done in, say, the UK. 
um, many of the puffins that we've tracked from the colonies in Ireland have, have made a beeline right the way across the Atlantic, um, around about to the, the Labrador Shelf off the coast of Canada. And then they've spent the majority of their winter towards the southern tip of Greenland in the middle of the Atlantic over winter. So when we compare this to, to colony data from a range of other colonies around the, the breeding distribution as far up as Norway, Irish puffins are actually undertaking one of the sort of the longest migrations over that winter period. As elsewhere, Irish puffin populations are in decline. But there is hope. Puffins are red listed in Europe, so they're an endangered species uh, because they have been declining across their range. We've got very half decent populations in Ireland and quite healthy populations in some areas. So the productivity monitoring that's been going on in places like the Skelligs Islands indicate that we've actually got quite good breeding success there. So that population seems to be increasing. Unfortunately, puffins are a very difficult species to monitor because they live in burrows and trying to access burrows to find out whether there's a puffin living in that burrow or a Manx shearwater or a rabbit or any other animal is quite difficult. So it relies on playing calls down the burrows and seeing if a bird responds or shoving your arm down a burrow and seeing if there's anybody home. Um, but that's quite difficult to do when you're on very, very steep, rocky and cliff-like islands. So it's very hard to, to get a really good estimate of how many we are to know whether those populations are stable or, or decreasing. Um, I'm hopeful that puffins are going to do better than they have in recent years simply because of things like eradication programs for rats that are an invasive species and a predator of puffins. So once we get rid of those on some of the breeding colonies, they're likely to have increased breeding success, and that means increased juvenile recruitment to the population and an increase in population. So I'm very hopeful for Irish puffins, but I certainly wouldn't take it for granted. There's a lot of work that does need to be done to ensure their conservation status. There's clearly enormous affection for puffins. But will this affection lead to the species' protection? There's no shying away from the fact that the puffins' long-term future doesn't look terribly rosy at present. I've often said that if puffins didn't exist, conservation organisations such as Birdwatch Ireland would have to invent them. They're the perfect ambassadors for the natural world. Living, breathing, waddling, flying, belly-flopping adverts for the sheer beauty and wonder of nature easily able to go toe-to-toe with snow leopards, polar bears, golden eagles and fellow iconic poster animals for the environment. If, as a society, we can't motivate ourselves to save the puffin, the adorable, beloved, charismatic puffin, what will we be persuaded to save? But I believe we're up to the challenge. The puffin is literally irreplaceable. To lose it would be unthinkable. So, let's not think it. Instead, let's take our cue from our little brother of the Arctic, which pushes itself to extreme lengths in order to survive and routinely overcomes challenges that seem insurmountable, making dramatic changes to its lifestyle to prevent disaster. If the puffin can do it, so can we.